Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Okay, so I grew up in a suburb. I live my whole adult life in the city. And right now, I am standing next to a tractor wheel that is taller than me. There are tractors everywhere, all over the main thoroughfares of Brussels and completely taking over Place du Luxembourg, right in front of the parliament. It's a scene of farmers and explosions of I don't even know what, burning tires. There's smoke everywhere. In case the tractors were not enough of a hint, these are farmers, and the explosions are telling you they are angry. So just as, a, as I was meeting up with my producer, Sam Plus Lux, I was feeling kind of disoriented. But then uh, I bumped into my colleague, Eddie Wax, perfect man for the moment. He used to be an agricultural reporter here at Politico, and now he covers the parliament. And he's been walking around figuring out what the heck is going on. You've been here all morning. What are you seeing? Well, it's pretty impressive, the, the protest. I haven't seen anything this scale in front of the parliament for, for years. We've got farmers from all different parts of Europe, Spanish, Italian, Belgian, lots of Flemish farmers that have come down. The streets are totally rammed with their tractors. There's the smell of manure and straw strewn all over the streets. It's kind of a festive atmosphere, but also quite an angry atmosphere. Basically, the farmers are here because they, they are, they're pissed off. They want to direct their anger about economic difficulties they're in, the sense of over-regulation of their, of their agricultural activities. I spoke to one young Flemish farmer who's 26 years old, said he was called Brecht, and he said he wants to go organic. He wants to do what you know the EU is encouraging lots of farmers to do and grow organic uh, table grapes somewhere in Flanders, but he's been waiting for that permit for three years, so he's really pissed off. And it's interesting, there's a real kind of smorgasbord of political views here. Like We often talk about just farmers, right? But there's no such thing as just farmers. There are the left-wing farmers represented by Via Campesina who want to, want to put an end to kind of liberal trade policies, which they, they see as the kind of root of all evil. And then you've got lots of uh, more right-wing farmers. You've got the kind of classical farmers' unions like Calderetti from Italy, uh, Asaja from Spain, and they're out here in force. They're chanting things like, this is not the Europe that we want. And you, obviously then you have MEPs stepping out of the parliament, which is just here. We can, we're looking at it now, covered in smoke. And, you know, you've got the Spanish left-wing MEP far left, you know, you've got the Spanish far right, you've got Estonian far right, I've seen German far right people here, you know, the Belgian centrists. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting day so far. I'm Sarah Wheaton, and in this episode of EU Confidential, we'll be trying to figure out why these guys are here and gals, it's mostly guys, why they're so angry and what the EU may or may not do about it. The other big irony is part of the reason that they're here is because 
European leaders are all meeting just down the street in Brussels today. But the thing that those leaders are meeting about actually has nothing to do or very little to do with the farmers' concerns. They are going to be trying to agree on a deal to send 50 billion euro to Ukraine. So we're going to head over in that direction towards the council buildings where EU leaders are meeting. But then also we'll kind of head back inside for a little bit more peace to try to get a sense of what's behind these farmer protests, which have been happening all over the continent. Today is indeed a very special day. The European Council reconfirmed Europe's unwavering commitment to stand with Ukraine. So we will support them with the necessary funding. These 50 billion euros for four years also send a very strong message to Putin. So we're standing here in a dark and secluded corner of the Eustace Lipsius building. I'm here with Barbara Moons. Hi, Sarah. And Jacopo Barigazzi. Hi, Sarah. Barbara, last time we talked to you on the podcast, we were recalling a night in December when they realized they had a Victor Orban problem. They came up with a temporary solution, but they pushed the real decision to today at the, this extraordinary UCO. What just happened? Yeah, last time we were here, leaders failed to agree on this 50 billion aid package to Ukraine. And leading up to this summit, you could feel a lot of annoyance, frustrations with the EU leaders that they had to again come to Brussels, again to talk sense into Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. It was very important for the EU to agree on this 50 billion financial aid to Ukraine because they really need the money to support the economy, especially entering the third year of the war with Russia. And given that we still don't have a deal in Washington to also send more money to Ukraine. In the end, we had expected a very long European Council, which was not the case at all. Before the official start of the meeting, a small group of leaders huddled with Orban to make sure that they would get a compromise before entering into the formal start of the meeting with the 27 leaders. And Jacopo, what are you hearing about how they actually managed to make this deal and were there any key power brokers? They were for sure all of Scholz because of the role of Germany, that the role that always plays Germany. The French President Emmanuel Macron, because uh, he also uh, likes every time to be seen as uh, the one able to fix uh, issues. He met with Vladimir Putin <laughs> years ago, so he's always trying to play that kind of role. And this time also the Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni, who has always been uh, close politically to Orban, but she's also trying to be a moderate, so she tried to be a bridge between uh, the EU mainstream uh, politicians and uh, Orban, who has always been the enfant terrible, the troublemaker of the EU for now a decade. And I think that's a little bit the key takeaway that in December, Orban was still very isolated. Also, in the days leading up to this, it was very much 26 versus 1. What they try to do now is pull Orban back into the game to make sure that we still have this sense of European unity towards Ukraine, but also in a lot of other files where Orban is being, as Jacopo said a little bit, the enfant terrible of the class, to make sure that they try at least to restore this trust between Hungary and the other 26 EU countries. So who who won? Did this trust get restored and this unanimity restored by just giving Orban what he wanted? No, not very much so, meaning that Orban got uh, very little. But we need also to take a step back and realize that it was something big at stake which is the fact that uh, Orban is uh, Vladimir Putin's friend in the room. And uh, in a year, 
where, uh, according to the polls, we'll have a strong performance of parties uh, closer to Russia, and all, like all the parties that form the, the far right in Europe. Uh, and so there was very much a stake that goes also well beyond Brussels and reaches also Moscow and uh, uh, DC, and uh, which is one of the reasons why the unity was so strong that at the end uh, it didn't get much. I mean, what he got, uh, it's uh, some language uh, on the fact that uh, the rule of law, there will be a little bit... Uh, a trust-building exercise in the way the Commission will push for the rule of law to be respected in uh, uh, Hungary, but uh, without uh, uh, going away from leaving Brussels today with uh, a check in his pocket uh, with some billion uh, euros uh, on the check. On the other hand, however, there is not yet a deal on giving extra money for the military aid to Ukraine, so that is something that will be discussed in the coming weeks and months. Jacopo, what are you going to be looking for as the next steps. There is, uh, I believe, a growing concern for uh, what is going to happen uh, in the conflict uh, between Ukraine and uh, Russia, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There is a growing concern for uh, how long can really uh, Ukraine resist, and there is also concern for uh, what will happen if Trump wins the elections. Today in the room, uh, Orban actually made an interesting point when uh, he said, according to an official familiar with the discussion, that uh, if uh, Trump gets elected, we reach out to Moscow, to Putin directly. At that point, the risk is that the EU will be cut off from uh, the talks on the future of Ukraine. And so from this moment on, uh, everything on the military aid will become even more important now that the economic part has been sorted, and also uh, the role that the EU uh, will play Uh, once and if there is a peace deal. One irony is outside of this building, there are tractors all over the place and Place Luxembourg has literally been on fire um, from farmers protesting. But that was not officially on the agenda initially for this meeting. Barbara, were the leaders paying attention to the farmer protests at all? Yes, absolutely. Um, they're very aware, and it's not just the French president. The several leaders also addressed the issue in the room. So they're very much aware. At the same time, there was not much that they could decide or agree on today. So that will be something more for the coming weeks, also uh, leading up to the next meeting of the EU's agriculture ministers in Brussels. One more question. We've also talked here about Jean-Michel. He said he was going to step down early as European Council president to run for the European Parliament. And then when people got mad about that, he was like, "Okay, actually, I'm going to stick around. You know, we got this deal today very quickly. Does this restore his credibility at all? Or did he not really have anything to do with it? There was definitely a lot of criticism and pushback towards Michel's announcements. The first one that he would run to be a candidate for the European Parliament. And then the second one that he would pull out of the race because there was a little bit the feeling, then why did we go through all this process? He was also the one that had organized a special European Council to make sure that there was a deal. So in the other scenario, if there wouldn't have been a deal, then he would have gotten a lot of criticism and also a lot of annoyance from EU leaders that he had called everyone to come to Brussels again, to then again have a no deal, etc. So in that sense, it's definitely a win for him that this 
had been done relatively quickly um, without major concessions to Hungary. We again have the signal of EU unity. So that is definitely something that he can use to polish up his image. This time uh, the solution could have not been like in December. In December the solution they found was that uh, Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, went to the toilet in the moment of the vote. This time they needed uh, a real political solution. Michel was there. Michel doesn't leave. At the end, uh, I mean, things went well beyond expectations. So indeed, European unity is no longer in the toilet. Congratulations to everybody on that note. (laughs) Barbara, Jacopo, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, I'm Stephen Overling, host of the Politico Tech Podcast. And I want to tell you about a recent episode. It's with Marguerite Vestager, Europe's top tech cop, who has been the face of European tech regulation for years. But soon, her tenure may be ending. I talked with Vestager on a trip to Washington about her years-long crackdown on Silicon Valley and why she's hoping to stick around a bit longer. You can listen to Politico Tech wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Le but c'est de produire aux mêmes conditions que nos pays européens. On est dans un marché. Over the past few weeks, protests have been bubbling up around Europe, and all of these protests have one thing in common: farmers. Outside Paris a few days ago, our reporter Victor Gouri Lafont spoke to just one of these farmers among a cast of thousands. We want to be held to the same standards as other European countries. It's a common market, but we have extra burdens compared to our neighbors. We also need to tackle free trade agreements and stop bringing in massive quantities of food from Ukraine, which is not a European country and has nothing to do with us even though it's at war. Ukrainian products are flooding our markets since Mrs. von der Leyen has agreed to let them in. I heard very similar demands and slogans reported from other protests across Europe, including the ones here in Brussels this week, which you heard at the top of the podcast. 
to discuss their discontent, I'm joined by my colleagues, familiar voices Clea Calcutt in Paris and Matt Karnischnig in Berlin. We also have senior climate correspondent Carl Matheson. And making his EU confidential debut, agriculture policy reporter Bartosz Brzezinski in Brussels. So, Carl, let's start with you. You've been talking to a lot of European farmers lately, but let's just kind of step back. Like when we're saying European farmers and the people involved in these protests, like who are we actually talking about? Is this like old McDonald and his wife on their little family farm? Or is this like, you know, Cargill, huge mega farm? Is it actually just lobbyists? Like who even is protesting? I think these are genuine farmers protests. These are farmers in their tractors coming up from, you know, smallhold and medium hold farms in general. Across the last few years, this discontent in the agricultural community has really been rooted in real disputes at the kind of micro farm level, I think, because there's a lot of pressure on rural communities from lots of different angles, from regulation, from trade. So that's what's bubbling up, I think. And why are we seeing it bubbling up now? And, and you know, did, had you seen this coming or... Yeah, I think that there's a maybe a strategic element to it in that, you know, we're obviously moving into an election year and there's a, a keenness to send a message to Brussels in particular and put pressure on. There's maybe also a piggybacky element. I mean, we saw a huge upwelling and a huge and a really successful political movement come through the farmers' protests in the Netherlands last year. And the success of the Farmers' Party there in provincial elections and then not so much in the national elections, but they certainly have shown a model for successful protest and moving into successful politics. And so I think that that has sort of unleashed and encouraged farmers across Europe. Also, I would say that there are national dynamics in every country that are like particularly important and individual. And so I I don't know how much we can say that this is like a coordinated or single upwelling, but rather a a lot of different localized discontents bubbling to the surface at once as well. So speaking of these national discontents, um, we just saw German farmers really kind of taking the lead a few weeks ago. Matt, we talked about the sexy German budget crisis uh, here on this podcast, but we didn't realize that it would uh, make farmers so angry. What's the connection? Well, the connection is that when the government here was trying to figure out where they could save money, eventually they ended up looking at the farmers because the coalition in Germany at the moment doesn't really count the farmers as one of their key constituencies. The farmers in Germany have always been core to the Christian Democrats who are now in opposition. So the three parties running Germany at the moment, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the liberals, the free Democrats, decided to go after a fuel subsidy for the farmers, which has existed for decades. And this subsidy comes in the form of a rebate on diesel, which many farmers rely on because their tractors need a lot of diesel to run. And for some of the big farmers, this was going to cost them tens of thousands of euros if they were to lose the subsidy. So they also took to the streets with their tractors. They famously blocked the Brandenburg Gate in central Berlin and have been out on the streets more or less ever since protesting. Thank you very much, Matt. Clea, the French have the biggest agriculture industry in Europe, so it shouldn't be so surprising that the French farmers are making some of the biggest noises. 
they basically said over the weekend that they were going to lay siege to Paris. What's happening? Well, so far, there is no siege. Wednesday was a bit of a key day because a big convoy of tractors was heading for Paris, but also our large you know, marketplace in the outskirts of Paris. And everybody was wondering whether at last, you know, the government was going to have to crack down on the farmers. Now, it looks like that has subsided, that the farmers are actually playing ball with the police officers. So they're not completely blocking the motorways. They're sort of doing protests. There have been some arrests. But so far, that siege seems to be largely symbolic. Also, the government has turned a lot of political firepower into you know, resolving this issue. So, for instance, whether it's giving aids, whether it's, uh, Matt, you mentioned those diesel subsidies, we have the same issue here. So they've decided to prolong the diesel subsidies. There's a whole load of little measures. And also, uh, Emmanuel Macron has been turning his ire against the European Commission, which is a big bugbear in the, in the farming world here. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yes. Well, there's one big issue that keeps coming back, which is trade deals. Uh, French farmers do not like trade deals. And even if, you know, in the detail, it might be advantageous to some parts of the farming world, they see the Mercosur deal being a great threat. So, for instance, the arrival of lots of Latin American beef on the market is seen as something that could just drown French uh, farmers even more so. So they want stop to the Mercosur, and Macron has, you know, taken this very seriously and, in quite bullying tones, um, has, has said quite clearly that this is in this context we cannot sign a free trade deal with Latin America. And also, we've had leaks of text messaging between Macron and von der Leyen saying you've got to hit the brakes now. Bartosz, you've been following protests around the EU, including in Belgium. So can you tell us, do Belgian farmers have similar demands? Do you have a sense of, of what the message is? Yeah, so I think Carl really made a good point. At first glance, it might appear like these farmers are all rebelling against something greater, whether it's EU Green Deal, whether it's environmental regulation. But in the end, this is about their bottom line. They've been kind of facing this difficult conundrum of factors over the past few years. We had the COVID pandemic, we had the recession, we had the war in Ukraine that kind of put the prices of energy into record levels and uh, input prices also went up. So chemicals that farmers use to plant their seeds, all of that increased. Uh, meanwhile, while we've been seeing food inflation, so prices in supermarkets have increased to record levels, that has not materialized at the farm level. So farmers still pay kind of lower prices for their product or they sell them for relatively stagnant prices. And so this is kind of where this fuel has been there for a long time. And so the, all it took was a spark. So in Germany, the spark was the subsidies on diesel being cut. In France, similar grievances were being raised, but also the fact that Mercosur is still alive. So all these big things always come in on top of things that hurt farmers every day. And so in a way, the reason why these protests are erupting all across Europe, farmers do talk to each other. They do exchange WhatsApp messages. They see each other on social media. There are TikTok channels that they share with each other, videos of tractors in Germany. When farmers staged a two-hour demonstration across Poland, they were saying they were inspired by German protests. So all of this kind of piggybacks off of one country after another. Underneath it all, we can see, including in Belgium, that farmers are really protesting against their being squeezed for several years now. And so as farmers in Belgium, 
these grievances also vary. In Flanders, farmers are protesting against nitrogen regulations, the same issue that led to the mass protests in the Netherlands. Farmers in Wallonia are protesting against a supermarket chain that is buying out agricultural land. And they're all kind of amassing in Brussels. Also because um, this is kind of the, the easy boogeyman to point the finger at and say these, these kind of faceless bureaucrats in, in the capital of the EU are making decisions that are hurting us. Whether it's true or not, that's uh, up to debate, but oftentimes it's really national grievances that are coming to the fore. And so when all these leaders gather in Brussels, it becomes kind of an easy target. But at the same time, farmers in France are protesting against farmers from Spain and their produce that is being imported into France. Farmers in Germany are raising similar concerns. Farmers in Italy are rebelling against imports of Ukrainian grain. Meanwhile, Italy is the largest importer of Russian grain in the EU and they farmers haven't made those grievances. So it's really kind of, if you look at granularly at every country, those grievances differ. Bottom line is economic impact. The fact that farmers have been kind of squeezed. That's really fascinating. I mean, we can almost imagine that if they actually started talking to each other when they're gathered on Plus Lux, that we'd see more of a of a brawl among them as opposed to, you know, directed at the council or the Berlaymont. Let's look ahead beyond this council summit to the European Parliament elections. You know, Carl mentioned that this is kind of somewhat predictable, also in the sense that that we have an election year coming up. We've seen European parties on the right, whether it's the center-right of the European People's Party really going out of its way to say, look, we're the party of the farmers, but also, you know, at the national level, far-right parties kind of cozying up to protesting farmers. Clea, um, this video that we saw over the weekend of Marine Le Pen taking a tractor ride. What's your sense of how sort of mainstream national leaders are dealing with this and trying to navigate this as part of this broader threat of the far right that we've been talking about consistently on this podcast? I mean, it's interesting in France because what we've seen is Macron's government kind of almost taking a leaf from the Eurosceptics and talking about French patriotism, French way of agriculture, all these sort of buzzwords that you normally hear Marine Le Pen and far right politicians using. So there's a sense that you know, Macron is seen as being quite the Europhile in France, and that way he's kind of undercutting it. This sort of play acting of him and von der Leyen, the European Commission president, having this, you know, match and this confrontation over the Mercosur is a way of enacting that and showing to France that, you know, President Macron is standing up for French interests, he is standing up for the farmers and sort of trying to undercut the far-right rhetoric on this. Really interesting, might work. It also might completely backfire because in a way you're legitimizing the far-right and its rhetoric about, you know, how Brussels is responsible for everything and how those uh, nerds in Brussels are just making rules and basically don't understand real French agriculture, the countryside and how real countries work, basically. Matt. I think in Germany it's a similar picture, but there's really a battle here between the far right and the center right, which, as I said, has been the traditional political home for farmers. And there's a big question now about whether the far right will be able to erode that dominance that the Christian Democrats have had in Germany for decades. In fact, the party was basically founded as a farmer's uh, party, along with the Bavarian wing, the Christian Social Union. So far, we haven't seen very many signs that that is happening, but I think it has happened elsewhere in Europe and neighboring Austria, 
For example, you've seen the far-right party there, the Freedom Party, have some success in winning over the farmer lobby. But I think with these protests ongoing in Germany and, and morphing into something that goes beyond this narrow question about the diesel subsidies, it's something that I know politicians here in the center are very worried about. And in Brussels, we, especially over this nature restoration debate, we really kind of saw this idea of you know farmers being pitted against the green agenda. Carl, in your reporting, have you have you kind of seen these connections being played out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that farmers obviously are sort of rallying against what they see as a kind of Brussels green overreach. But I think also what you know what we been describing and talking about across the board is a sense that I've picked up over a few years of reporting now that a lot of farmers are telling a story or picking up on a story about a kind of international or global forces that are undermining their way of life. And that story has like really big implications for a kind of a supranational body like the EU. And I had a conversation with a Dutch farmer yesterday who had been talking to for more than a year. And he was saying that for me, the thing that connects all of these different national uprisings is the global goals. And part of that is, you know, the Paris Agreement and the climate goals. And part of it is, you know, Mercosur and trade agreements. Like, But there is just this sense that national sovereignty is under threat and national sovereignty is what protects these farmers against these global forces. And that has huge implications for a collective effort like the climate effort and the Green Deal. Because that, in a way, it's a goal that the EU has set itself. It's top down. The 27 member states agree it, and then it gets implemented at national level. And there is a sense right now that a lot of that is in jeopardy. And there is also this kind of scientific imperative that agriculture is going to have to face up to, which is that it's a huge contributor to greenhouse gases. And the EU has set tough goals and they are going to have to reform if the EU is going to meet those goals. There is like no wiggle room for agriculture in that sense. For example, the EU is going to have to produce and consume less meat and probably less dairy and things like that because cows just produce a huge amount of uh, CO2 and other you know, red meat livestock. So whatever they feel and say right now about like, it being unfair that obviously they need they need help to reform but the fact is that agriculture is going to have to cut its emissions and so the conversation needs to evolve beyond you know one camp saying you've got to do it and one camp saying absolutely not and we're stuck in that moment now especially pre-election and and actually the camps are getting further apart so i think that's the situation we're in now and it has to move beyond that if the eu is going to achieve its climate goals Bartosz zooming in on EU agriculture policy. I'm just thinking I was I was talking to a former agriculture attaché recently who was just observing that if we treat things as this binary of farmers versus the climate, that that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. Do you have any sense that there's a way to escape that political binary? Definitely. I think right now we've kind of got into this situation where Farmers are being treated kind of as political pawns without their own voice because uh, a, a lot of farmers that I speak to, they're keen to adopt better farming models or more sustainable farming models. Oftentimes the subsidies are designed in such a way that they're not always incentivizing that. There's also the difference in prices that farmers get for organic production versus uh, conventional production that is way more intensive. 
is it doesn't really make sense economically for a lot of farmers. So if incentives are there, farmers will basically go where the money is because they are running a business. They're not running a political platform here. And so even groups like Copacogeca, the biggest farm lobby in Europe, the stereotype is that they back big farmers. The truth is that they also have organic farmers as their members. They have smallholder farmers. The system as it is kind of benefits big producers that continue to, with this kind of conventional model of intensive agriculture. Also, we have a lot of agrochemical companies that are have vested interest in this. They benefit from sale, selling to these big producers. In the Netherlands, in Belgium, in countries like Ireland, uh, we have intensive livestock production. That is not always the case for other countries. In Eastern Europe, a lot of it is grain production. The big question there is what will we do when Ukraine joins the bloc? So questions in those countries are less about climate change and more about trade with one of the biggest grain producers in the world. And so I think there is also a reflection in Brussels that we cannot continue kind of treating farmers as a monolithic structure. We need to create just transition mechanisms. We need to really cater subsidies to where they need to go. Of course, the backlash is there. And the backlash, like Carl was saying, comes often from the fact that uh, there is a lack of dialogue. There is a, a lot of misinformation there as well. Farmers... They would be the first to say, we're not far right, we're not extreme right. But these are often the groups that kind of go to them because they see in them these angry, anti-systemic group of people that supposedly on the surface looks like extreme uh, radicals. But the real farmers, they just want to make money. And I think that's really the key to understanding the transition. If we enable farmers to make more money from other types of farming, chances are they will go there. And there will be, of course, losers from this. There will be livestock farmers who will have to cut their stocks. There will be farmers who will have to give up some of their land or practices because this is too intensive. But overall, I think what we're seeing, at least the evidence on the ground, is that farmers don't have to be all losers from this. And that's kind of my optimistic take on from what I, how I see things. All right. We're going to be optimistic by following the money and following the farmers. Thanks so much to Carl Bartosz, Clea and Matt for joining me today. And that's all we have for you this week on EU Confidential. Please remember to follow us on your favorite app and do write to us at podcast at politico.eu to share your ideas for guests and topics. I'm Sarah Wheaton. Thanks this week to our colleague Victor Gorille-Lafont, our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and to Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next week.